0: book ever. It's God's living word. And, and yet every now and then there's this dilemma. As followers of Christ, we know we're supposed to be in the word. And we have the privilege of actually having the word written for us. And we have the, we, most of us know how to read and all of that. And we're incredibly privileged on this level. When you look at world history and you look at the globe, to actually have the scriptures in our hand, have the ability to read them, it, it's an amazing privilege. And we know that as followers of Christ, it's, it's not just our duty and all of that. It is our huge privilege to be able to dive into this word. Now, here's the dilemma. On a Tuesday morning, I got to get to work at however early in the morning. And I set my alarm and to get up a little bit earlier to read the word. The alarm goes off and I stumble across the room because you have to set it on the other side of the room to make sure you don't <laughs> snooze or something, you know. Get to the other side, you finally get it. And all the temptation is calling from your bed to go back to bed. But no, you grab the scripture and I go and I, I turn on the light next to the chair and sit down and, and crack open the pages of scripture. And then we read something like was just read for us this morning by Christina from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where there's this. Conversation that it seems like we're eavesdropping on about Paul and his relationship with the the church of Corinth and this guy Titus, and it seems just completely and totally irrelevant to my life. (laughs) You know, and and at times there's certain passages of scripture that we read and we're like, what in the world does that have to do with me? And I'm really glad that I have this privilege, but how does that thing? Like, what does that do for me? Like, how does that, how do we interface with that? How does that actually help? And you know, like, I know that what's in this book, that that God through this book has the ability to change my life, but it just seems like sometimes it's dry and distant. You've had that dilemma? You've had that experience? How we read the Bible? It's called hermeneutics. How we read the Bible And uh, if you go to a Bible college or to a seminary, you'll take a class on hermeneutics, how you read the Bible. And how you read the Bible determines what you hear when you read the Bible. How you read it, you know, what we learn from it and what we hear and what we see is determined by how we read it. There's three basic principles this morning that I want to start off with that are basic hermeneutical principles that I believe in that are like entry-level hermeneutics. Anyone who's going to read the scriptures, should always apply these three principles. Okay, the first one is prayer. That when we start reading the scriptures, we need to start with prayer. Why? Because this is not just a book. This is the living word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active. It's the living word. This isn't just a book. This is a, a, a collection of all sorts of different books that God uses to communicate to us. He's alive. It's the living word. Therefore, this is a conversation. This is one part of a two-way conversation right here. And it's not the only way that he communicates, but it's his primary way. It's his first way. It's the way that he lays the foundation for all the other kind of communication. Really? This is the definitional way. This is his word. And so when I go to read this, I understand God wants to talk to me through this. He wants to communicate to me through this. So what do we do in a conversation? Well, you talk and you listen. And I'm about to read and I want to be able to listen, but I need to be able to engage conversationally. So I start the conversation like I would if I came home from work and my spouse is there if I wait wake up in the morning and my kids wake up. I start with saying something. So wake up, we open up the word and before we read, we just say something. God, I know that you're here. You know? I know you're with us. I can't see you right now, but I know you're here, and I know you want to communicate to me right now. And this isn't just me checking the box. I honestly want this relationship with you. Please be alive with me through the pages of this book and communicate. Help me to understand it for what it is and also to understand it for how it applies to me today. I want to hear. Please, I'm here with you. I hope you're having a great day. Help me have one too, you know. And, and so then we dive in. Prayer, first thing. Second principle. Before we read it, we pray. While we're reading it, we need context. Huge principle in hermeneutics is the, is the principle of context. If I just take one verse of Scripture and uh, I read it and take it out of context, uh, you know, it, it, I'll just pick one, okay? I just, here I am, Ezekiel chapter 5. I will spread your flesh on the mountains and fill valleys with your remains. Wow, that was the first. I just opened that up. I didn't plan that. That's pretty nasty right there. Wow, thank you. I was blessed today, God. You know, (laughs) and that doesn't really help me. You know, I need to understand what's going on around that. Why would that verse be in there? That verse doesn't speak to me right now. I'm like, wow, God hates me and he's going to kill me. Well, uh, let's see the context here. Who is it being written to this book within this book is all sorts of books and letters and poetry and history and all sorts of things that were written to different people at different times in different places with different circumstances all over the place. And for us to understand what this book is actually all about, it's extremely helpful for for us to understand who were the people, where were they, what was the context, what was going on, why is this being written? And what's more is is if I'm reading in, in the book of Acts all the way over here, well then I probably should have read Luke before it to understand that, and I probably should have read Genesis before that because they all understand that they're building on the ones before them. And so it's important if I'm going to go and pick and just read something that I understand what's going on all around it. Otherwise, it's like grabbing uh, the middle of an email thread, you know, and picking out just some email right in the middle of it and assuming I know what's being talked about. When I don't understand the whole conversation, we're picking up a letter from one person to another and reading it and assume I know what it means because of what it would mean if it was written to me, but it wasn't written to me. And this book, initially, it wasn't written to us. It's written for us, but it wasn't written initially to us. It was written to all sorts of other people, but God uses it to speak to us now. But the best way to understand what it says is to understand initially what it was meant to be. And then... It comes alive because we understand the principles within it that really apply to our lives. You understand? And so context is so essential. We understand what's going on all around it so we can understand what this book is actually saying. So, first, we pray. Second, we understand context. Third, we worship. Okay, because when we have the communication with God, we understand what it is that He said here and now it's alive and He's communicating to us, we only have one appropriate response, and that's worship. Now worship doesn't mean just what we just did with the band. That's called praise. And that's a form of worship, and it's a very important form of worship, but it's only one part of worship. Worship is giving God what he is worth, putting him in his appropriate place and putting us in our appropriate place, giving unto him what he deserves. Worship. Worth worship. And so what does God deserve? Well, he does deserve our praises. He deserves our song. He deserves our heart. He deserves all of that. He also deserves our respect. He deserves our time. He deserves us taking reflection and meditation over the things that he says. And really, he deserves our obedience and our submission. And so one of the greatest forms of worship, one of the greatest responses of Scripture is we say, thank you for your communication. Now I'm going to take it and I'm going to meditate on it and I'm going to let it just sink in and then I'm going to let it become a part. Of me. <coughs> <coughs> wow. That was weird. <coughs> Those don't seem like words to choke on. They're good words. <coughs> Got it. Good. Thanks. Yeah, so we worship in response. That was weird. And uh, our response to him is that we give him praise. We give him praise, we meditate on it, and then we allow it to become a part of us. Um, and he reigns as king. So three principles. Prayer, context, worship. Why don't you say them with me? Prayer, context, worship. If we want the fullness of what this scripture is about, it's an important it's an important three principles to hang on to to help us glean the fullness. Now, the reason I did all of that is because we're uh, uh, about to study the Second Corinthians chapter 7, which is one of those books, one of those letters, one of the chapters of a letter um, that when you read it, initially, you might be like, what does that have to do with me? It's not like it's like some painful passage. It's just like, it's just kind of random out there about Paul talking about his conversation he's having with the Corinth church and and kind of stuff that's going on. Why is it important for me to know all of that? And those principles are going to help us this morning. So the first principle is what? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks profoundly to us. We thank you that your word became flesh and dwelled among us. We thank you that your word is written on letters, on pages that don't change. We thank you that you apply those principles to our lives. You apply that truth to our life. Thank you that you reveal your story and yourself through these pages. And we ask that right now, God, you would communicate with us. It doesn't matter if there's a wonderful interpreter or a subpar interpreter. It doesn't matter if there's a great preacher or, uh, or the kind of preacher I like or the kind of preacher someone else likes. None of that's as important right now as the fact that your spirit be with us, communicating with us what it is that you want us to know. So God, we just ask that you would be here with us and you would communicate with us right now and you would guide us into all truth. Uh, we thank you for the conversation time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so... We prayed. Second thing is context. We're going to talk about the context. This conversation—it's the book of Second Corinthians. Who do you? This is a letter written from Paul to the Corinthians, right? Now, uh, Corinthians—it's uh, it, actually a two-part series here. Second um, Corinthians, and it comes after the first book, which is the first part of the series. Anyone know what that is? First, yeah, you guys deserve prizes. Um, So 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. And in the conversation between Paul and Corinth, something has happened. Now, I'm not going to go into a big thing about uh, the church in Corinth or the people of Corinth because we're not actually studying the whole thing of the Corinthians. We're just studying one chapter, but I'll give you a real brief. This is all you need to know (coughs) is that uh, the the town of Corinth, the city of Corinth is not a, a Jewish town as many of the towns that we deal with. It's a Roman city. And it is a thriving metropolis along a major trade route, actually a convergence of a couple of major trade routes. And the people of Corinth are like, this city is wicked. I mean, there is so much immorality. It's like if you take, you know, Vegas and Amsterdam, Sodom and Gomorrah, all that, it's one of those kind of cities where there's just all sorts of stuff going down. You know, uh, Steve, I think you mentioned Venice Beach last week or before I left for vacation. I was talking about going to Long Beach Island and Steve's like, well, at least you're not going to Venice Beach. You know, Steve's from California and referred to it as like a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. And like this is what Corinth is, just stuff running rampant. It's nasty, okay? Paul goes... Plants a church there. And the way Paul usually plants a church is he gets a few people together. He wins them to Christ. Gets them in a house together. They start worshiping together, having meals together, all of that, hanging out. And, uh, and then he moves on. He trains them and disciplines or disciples them for a few years, helps to create some form of leadership among them, and he moves on. His job is he's got to go spread the gospel wider and, and get the seeds spread. <clears throat> so he does that. Well, he moves on from Corinth. And then word comes to Paul about stuff that's going on in Corinth. And what's going on in Corinth isn't good. There's all sorts of problems in the church. See, there's all these fractions. And the fractions are, there's some people who are following Apollos, this other apostle. Some were saying they follow Paul. Some were saying they're they're fans of Peter. And they're all about, and, and Paul's like, this is ridiculous. We're supposed to be followers of Christ. And we have all these little camps of people who are fans of this person and that person and this thing and that thing. And what's more is, is then there's these people who are called super apostles, who come in and they, they are great orators and they teach all this different stuff that's really exciting but it's not even truth and in the middle of it, it turns out their lives are getting totally sub navigated by the enemy and they're living in ways that are completely inappropriate and they're arguing about who's the better preacher or about what kind of theology, theological point over here and in the meantime, the whole takeaway, the practical of their lives are not in submission to God. Their marriages are falling apart, there's immorality all across their church that's not not being dealt with. They're not, their worship services are out of control and they're not actually worshiping appropriately. There's all sorts, they're just a mess, you know? And Paul hears about it and he gets upset, okay? And he gets upset appropriately. And you see, if you want to see an apostle drop the hammer on a church, read 1 Corinthians. You know, this is when a leader in the church decides, it is my time to come and discipline these people because they're completely out of line. And so he goes point by point down the things they're doing wrong. He talks about their marriages. He talks about the person of immorality among them. He talks about how their worship services are functioning. He talks about their different gifts and how they, you know, this person's special because they have this gift and how all of that's just a bunch of junk and that what should be happening is the church should be unified around Christ. But instead, because they're all running after their own little things and they're not focusing on Christ, then because of that, there's all these different fractions, And what's more is, is Paul understands that he, as the apostle of this church, the planter of this church, the father, the spiritual father of this church, he's been completely disrespected by these people because there's a whole bunch of them who are like, yeah, Paul, like he's kind of a stick in the mud. He doesn't do stuff that's like as good. This guy over here is a better preacher and this guy has this good idea and all of this. And he's being disrespected and he catches wind of that. Now, it's not that Paul's personally offended so much. If you would pick up the passage and read it, you could see Paul defending himself throughout the pages of Scripture, and you'd be like, why is this important for us to hear about Paul defending himself in his relationship with these people? And again, in our passage today, you kind of see that. And what's that have to do with me? But the reason is not because Paul needs them to like him. Paul's a pretty secure guy in his faith in Christ. He doesn't need their affections. What he understands is, listen, this conversation isn't some guy who's been out of shape because they're being bad. This is a conversation between a parent and a teenage child who went off to college and is living in ways that are completely inappropriate and learning things that aren't okay, and they're buying in hook, line, and sinker and going their own way, and the parent is like, yo, how did we raise you? You know, remember what we taught you? Hang on to it. Like, and, when they, and when Paul sees how they're disrespecting him, he realizes their heart's in the wrong place. And he tries to get that relationship back, not because he needs to be caressed by their affection, but because he needs to, them to get back in line in order to get connected with God again, in order to keep them going the right way. So that's the context of the conversation with the Corinthians. That's what's going on with Paul's conversation with the Corinthians. He's talking all about his relationship with them and in the middle of that, he's talking about what it looks like to have a true faith walk. And, and he, he, the lipness test, the dipstick, so to speak, as to whether or not that's happening is partially how, their affection and their respect for him. And so all across the pages of these two books, you see him defending his relationship with them and then talking about what it means to really follow God. Okay, that's the the context of of 1 Corinthians especially and what he does. And you see it here in the first couple verses of our passage. He says this, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting the holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. This is what happens. Titus, who you hear about later in this chapter, you heard it when Christina read the chapter for us, Titus comes back and he says, Paul, you'll never guess what happened. You know that letter you wrote? Guess what? They actually listened to you they actually listen to you they're doing what you said their worship services have changed their marriages have changed there's a lot of stuff that's actually changed they're doing what you told them to do and paul's like yeah you don't hear his response but my guess is paul's like wow they actually listen to me you know and they 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 did what i asked them to but paul actually he responds with this thing where he says now listen that's not enough it's not enough to just do what it is that i told you to do you actually have to take it to the next level where you completely purify yourself and where you actually open your heart to me, you know? Where you're not just doing the thing because I said to do it, but you really open your heart for me. And you're not just doing what I tell you to do, but you're beginning to think and understand how this is supposed to work. When I um, played soccer at college, uh, you know, all the kids come from high school. and, And worse, it was a small... College and uh, we had a pretty good, pretty good squad for the size of our school and for the league that we were in, but it was still a small college and, um, but all the kids who come there, you know, they come from their high schools. And in high schools, each kid who comes to the college team is is probably a star in high school. You know, and then you come to the college team and now there's a bunch of guys who are pretty much at the same level as you. And you'd think that when you come out of high school that you would have learned the kind of the strategy of the game, the philosophy of the game, how it works. But that's not really true. Oftentimes in, in high school, what makes someone excel in sports or in whatever they do is they're just individually very gifted. And so they naturally excel beyond the person next to them. It doesn't mean they actually know the strategy of how it all works. So you show up at at college and uh, coach, I remember, first day he puts these cones up. And in soccer one of the philosophies of uh, the structure of how you play soccer is triangles. Everyone, the position, everyone's got to be in triangles all the time and you pass the ball around the triangles. And the reason is you don't want someone just running straight up like this because then you got to loft the ball perfectly to them and land right in front of a very hard pass. You want them coming across you so that when you pass the ball, they're catching up to it and it gives you an angle to get to them. You also don't want them running flat across the field because you're not making any headway down the field. So you run on angles like this and these angles form triangles and you pass around the triangles as everyone's moving around okay that's how it works you're constantly in triangles well coach shows up and he has these cones up okay and we're passing the ball around and he says run to that cone dearing you know run to this cone and he's having someone else pass the ball as I'm running to that cone. And he's just having me run run to this cone, run to that cone. He never tells me what he's doing. He's like, I'm going to teach you how to play soccer. And I'm like, I did pretty good. You know, I'm like, all right, you don't know anything. Run to the cone, you know? And so I'd run to the cone. And after a while, he, you know, we got used to these patterns of crisscrossing as the ball would come to us. Then he takes the cones away and he sets up some defenders. And he says, all right, now defenders, stay still, but run through this defender and run this direction and run just like I had you running through the cones. And so you start to learn these angles as you're running through someone. Oh yeah, I passed the defender. Here's the ball and I'm turning and going up field and someone else is crossing here and I pass it back the other way and I'm starting to learn the philosophy. Then he says, let's have a scrimmage, you know. And so now the defenders are moving and we're actually playing. Now all of a sudden the defenders know how this is going to work. So they jump the angle and you have to learn how to readjust the pattern based on what the defense is doing. And then after a while you do that so much you stop thinking about triangles and you just start playing soccer because it's who you are. You know, it's, it's just in there. And this is what Paul's trying to get them to do in the Christian walk. He said, I told you to run to this cone and you did it. Cool, you're finally listening to me. You know, that's great. You're listening to me. But that's not enough. I I can't be there every time telling you what to do. You need to begin to eat, sleep, breathe kingdom of God. You need to think with Jesus. You need to have the Holy Spirit communicating to you. You need to be in this thing where the principles are at play and they're working, and in any given situation, you might be able to adjust and move in order to further the kingdom of God and stay connected to Him. You see, I don't want to have to tell you, run to this cone. I want to get you to a place where it's just part of who you are. I was working at Vanguard, and uh, (laughs) I... I had only worked there for a year, and uh, we get our annual review. It was my first annual review, um, and uh, we had an uh, an awesome boss. She was just absolutely spectacular. And uh, you, at the annual review, you have a three hundred and sixty review. You know, you uh, you review yourself, your peers uh, uh, review you, and your and the person in authority over you reviews you. <clears throat> and so, she was reviewing me, and she asked me, "Hey, I saw in your." where you're reviewing yourself on, you know, how good you are at your work, there's an option of putting, uh, you know, uh, below average, did what it was expected, and excelled beyond what is expected. And she said, what did you think? You know, how did you do? And and she said, "I, I saw that you wrote you thought you exceeded expectations. And I was like, yeah, I work hard, man. I'm sweating all day. I pound it as hard as I can and I, and I go after it and I get it done fast and I do really well work. And she's like, I think you did what was expected of you. And I was like, ouch, you know? <clears throat> and... Uh, And I was like, what's that about, you know? And uh, I'm like, seriously, I'm busting my hump. Like, I know I'm working extra hard. I could get this job done with a lot less effort, but I put in extra effort so I can get more of it done in a day than is expected of me. And she's like, yeah, but you're working hard, but not necessarily working smart, you know? And you're getting more stuff done for us, but you're not thinking the company yet, you know? And uh, see, the guy who I work with now was working with me then, Um, Josh was working with me then and he actually outranked me at Vanguard at that spot and uh, he got me the job and uh, I I remember like looking over at Josh and thinking yeah he's never sweaty at the end of the day you know and he's not working you know I'm the one who's wrapping pallets and driving truck and throwing forklift you know putting boxes all over and Josh is sitting at a computer um, you know like a librarian you know and uh, and but he started working smart and what he did was, and I noticed, he would think about Vanguard. And he would think about, like, how's this help them? How can we do this more efficiently? And he'd think smart. Like, how can we make the business work better? And I didn't care about that. I wanted to punch the clock, and I'd do manual labor and work as hard as I could and get as much done in the shortest amount of time as possible. And I did a lot, a lot of work in a short amount of time. But the expectation is that's the kind of work I would do. Exceeding expectation is when I begin to think on a different level. And that's what she was asking. Are you going to think on a different level? Are you going to begin to think about how to best make things work better? You know, and, um, and this is, again, what Paul's saying. I see this in marriages all the time, where people come and talk to us about the struggle that they have in their marriage. And I see each spouse defending what it is they do. I'm doing what it is that I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm, I'm buying the flowers. I'm saying the nice thing. I'm being considerate. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I did my part. I'm being a good spouse. But what they're not actually doing is getting into the head of the other person and beginning to think about family life and marriage life. And how can we make this whole thing work better? How can I, how can I help them from their vantage point? How can we make the whole family function better? Instead, they're just thinking, what's my job as a spouse? I did my thing. Now, you should do your thing. And When you drop the ball, bam, you know, and, like, that's, and you see that all the time. But what Paul's saying is in our relationship with God, for the, for the Corinthians, in their relationship with God and in their relationship with him, it's not good enough to just run to that cone or to just check off the box what I did. Go further. Think, breathe, kingdom of God. Be in relationship with God. Move, yearn for more wisdom from the apostle. Don't just do what the spiritual authority, when the spiritual authority comes down on me and says, go do this, all right, I'll do it. But be like a child who wants more information and guidance and wisdom from the leader in order to be moved forward. Be hungry for it. That's what he's calling for them. It's cool you did this, but now we need more, you know? And so that's that, that's that whole picture. Okay, now that was all about the conversation of from 1 Corinthians and how 1 Corinthians plays into this passage. That's why he's saying, take it to the next level because of everything that happened before. You see, if we had just read that and just read, okay, purify yourselves from all these other things and open your hearts to me, it'd be like, okay, that was great. And we'd breeze right past it. And on a, in our morning, Tuesday morning, when we're reading that thing, we just read right past it. But when you understand 1 Corinthians and the relationship that he's had with these guys, you understand why he's calling them to give more of their hearts to him and to go after it more. Now, in the second, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he goes deeper with them. And he begins to explain the whole situation of this battle, of this context that they're in. And he sets up this motif that he, he leans into all the way through the book. And over here is kind of, uh, this is what he calls life in the spirit. And how do you live life in the spirit? By faith. Okay, so he said, we live by faith. This is in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We live by faith, not by sight. I heard some of you say, not by sight. And he said, some live according to the spirit, but some live according to the flesh. So there's life in the flesh that's by sight. This flesh, you know, this body, it has eyes, and that's how I see, that's how I perceive. But over here in the spirit, my eyes can't see and they can't perceive. I need something else. Faith is the essence of things unseen, not seen. The presence of things hoped for. So the things that I don't see are over here in the spiritual world and I need eyes of faith to see them. But over here is the physical world with the things that I can see. And he says, you know, you're in this struggle between these two things. And that's what he's talking about throughout this whole second book because he's explaining when it goes to taking it to the next level, he's trying to get them to make the jump into the whole other realm, you know? And so he's trying to explain why he had to beat them up back in the day. I had to smack you because you're still living over here and you needed me to set up a cone for you because you can't see the cone on your own. You don't understand it yet. And fortunately, you were obedient. That's great. But now I need you to see there's a whole nother realm, a whole nother world that you need to begin to live in, live in, okay? And so... What happens is we get all the way to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and I want you again to picture it. It's a Tuesday morning you know, and the, or a Wednesday morning, whatever it is, and you just got, hit the alarm and, and you grabbed your Bible and you pull out Second Corinthians chapter 7 and you already prayed and you say, God, guide me through this day and, and help me to connect with you. And, and here I am and I'm gonna read the scripture and, and I open it up and I read the first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Excuse me, and it says this. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Okay, God, I read it. You want me to purify myself from everything that contaminates, both the body and the spirit. Okay, what contaminates my body and my spirit? Well, I ate like garbage yesterday. I ate a lot of junk food. And um, that contaminates my body. Um, I have other things that I'm involved in that probably aren't good for my body. I'll work harder today to try to get rid of them. What contaminates my spirit? I have this person at work who is absolutely um, ridiculous. Dunculous, And they, uh, you know, just can't uh, get their stuff straight and they drive me nuts. So I get angry. And every time I get angry, I know it affects my spirit. So I need to stop being angry at them and I need to stop eating this stuff. Okay. So now here I am and I have these takeaways from God. This is what I need to work harder at today. Okay. And if that's what I come away with, in my devotional life, what I've done is I've just skipped right to the practical application and decided now I've got to work harder today in order to honor God. And honestly, for me, that's a pretty hopeless situation. Because can I change myself? I can't. And if I struggle with addictions that affect my body, and if I struggle with anger problems or whatever else, pride or lust that affects my spirit, yet another day that I woke up and read the scriptures and it told me I should do that differently, you know? And yet another day that I'm gonna feel hopeless from reading the scriptures instead of hopeful because it just told me how I should live and I already know that I'm not doing that. Thank you so much that for this wonderful time in the word, it didn't actually help me. But listen, This is what we missed. Did you see what we missed? The first five words. Since we have these promises. Since. Since is a really important word, isn't it? It means that there's something before it. Just like therefore, you know, therefore are one of the hermeneutical principles is anytime you see a therefore you ask what's it there for um you know there and uh, so a therefore a because a sense anything like that indicates that there's something before it and so here it just told me that i'm supposed to completely purify myself from all the stuff that affect my body and affect my spirit but it didn't just leave me hanging it said since we have these promises since we have these promises well what are the promises that's the first verse in the chapter Well, it must be in the chapter before it. So I might want to look at the context and slip back a little bit. So I want you, in 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 6, starting in verse 16, listen to what's happening. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Whoa. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said... So here comes a quote from God, okay? Here comes the promises. I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, (laughs) come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Now listen, touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. You got to hear this promise right here. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. That's a promise, isn't it? That should get you up in the morning right there. You know, okay, so I know over here that I'm not supposed to be doing this stuff that's harming my body and my spirit. But man, honestly, am I just going to man up another time today and try harder, you know, get more strength? Or am I just going to get depressed and, you know, be self loathing and hate myself? Or am I just going to say, forget it, I can't do it, and run to something else that's going to, you know, try to feed the emptiness inside? All of those things don't actually change me, do they? They get me focused inward and focused on myself. But when he says, since we have these promises, what are the promises? Over here in the spirit world, in the world of faith, I realize that the God of the universe is my dad. That he said he would be my God, and I would be his people. I would be his peoples, and he would be my God, and that he would come and walk among us. I mean, now the God of the universe who has all the affections for me, like a father does, walks with me. And no longer do I feel isolated over here saying I got to do this thing. Now I'm inviting the presence of the almighty, profound, powerful God who created me to conquer these things in my life that I don't have the strength to change. And now since we have these promises, now take it the whole way. If you have the eyes of faith, If you can see, then you know you have the strength through God to actually go after this stuff. See, what needed to happen is it wasn't, it'd be easy in reading this passage without understanding the context to think, I just got to power up and work harder, you know? But because of the context, what we understand is that it's not calling us just to power up. It's calling us to believe differently, to see differently. You know how sometimes you can only see certain things? And, and just like in this passage, you can miss, we, sometimes we jump right to, I want the effect, but I, I, I missed the, the cause, you know? I, I want, I want the, to build the house, but I missed the foundation of the house. There's no power in just do this. There's power when, it's, get, when I see how am I gonna do this? You know, and sometimes we skip. When we read the scripture, we go right to the takeaway. All right, what does God want me to do? All right, here it is. This is what I got to do in my life. And we miss the whole profound, deep part that God is trying to whisper to us that changes how we view our lives, that gives us the strength to be and to do what it is that he's called us to. And over here, God's saying, you need to change. And Paul is saying to them, there needs to be a shift in your eyes. Remember the um, Elisha in the Old Testament? Remember this guy, uh He had this, he was a profound prophet. He was the protege of Elijah and he had this uncanny ability to figure out what the enemy was doing. And one day the, the enemy king, he kept trying to attack and Elisha kept figuring out what was going on and he'd dime him out. Um, and then they'd adjust, and the, and the enemy couldn't attack. And the enemy king's like, there's got to be a spy over there or something. How do they keep figuring out my strategy? And eventually someone tips him off, and they're like, no, there's this prophet, and he knows what's going on, and the enemy's like, all right, this prophet's going down. So he takes all of his army, and he goes and he surrounds this town. I, imagine, it's like a huge, bloodthirsty army coming after one dude. That's it. You know, and it's not like this whole other town's going to defend him. I mean, it town's like, what do we care? You know, and so like they're about to give him up or whatever. And Elisha's servant comes out of the house and he steps out and he looks around the hills and he's like, oh no, you know, and he like swallows his tongue and his heart's going crazy. And he knows this is it, man. These guys are just going to do a sin. And he goes back and he tells Elisha and Elisha gets, gets down and he prays and he says, God, allow my servant to see what I see. See, because the servant was over here in the flesh. seeing with his eyes. And what happened is, is God empowers the servant. So the servant comes back out and he looks up and all around this army is the army of God. An army of God with swords and wings and whatever else the army of God has. I don't know. But this crazy army of God, the angelic hosts are all around him. And talk about a transition of mindset when before he was looking through eyes physical eyes of flesh. And instead, now he's looking through eyes of faith and he sees the power of God. And when he sees the power and presence of God, his entire situation looks so different. And now all of a sudden he's not on the losing team. He's on the winning team. He's not sitting here as a victim saying that he can't change anything. Now God's at work doing something and he's on the winning team right now. You know, it just changed everything, not because he powered up and got stronger and tried harder, but because his eyes shifted and he saw the truth. And the truth sets us free. Chapter 6 was really important to understand those first couple verses in chapter 7, wasn't it? It's amazing how much the context changes things for us. There's one other thing, and I know we're, uh, we're, we're cutting it close here. What, there's one other thing right in the middle of it. Paul says this. He says, look, I, I, I got to read it to you. <clears throat> Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. This was the first letter where it was really rough on. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter for you, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now listen, you got to hold on to this verse, okay? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now if I was just to read that, I could breeze right past that. But if you hold on to those terms, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, what do they mean? There is a wealth of information. There's a whole mine underneath of those terms and those words. What is godly sorrow? What is worldly sorrow? And if I want to dig in and understand what those terms mean, it's important for me to understand this whole context we've been talking about. And what we realize is that when Paul laid the smack down on them and when he brought the heat, they changed. What does repentance mean? Change, to turn around, to change. And what he says is, if you're over here in the flesh, worldly sorrow doesn't actually lead to change. It leads to death. It's the perpetuation of the cycle. So if I'm over here in the flesh, and I'm trying to do things better, and I keep failing, and I feel sad about it, and I have this sorrow, I hate myself, I can't do any better, this person's better at it, this person's better looking, this person's more intelligent, I'm a failure, I can't do this, who am I thinking about right now? Me. I'm thinking about me. Am I getting more loving by the moment here? No, godly sorrow changes me. Worldly sorrow just makes me more inward, more depressed, more despairing, not actually growing beyond it, you know? And so that's the kind of sorrow that's just like, I hate myself and I don't like myself and I'm disappointed with myself. And so now I either got to pride up and try to be better and and puff out my chest or I got to give up and have despair or whatever. But over here is a different kind of sorrow. And this is the kind of sorrow that they responded with and Paul was so excited about. And this is the sorrow that happens not from seeing the, the, the negative stuff about ourselves, but from seeing the truth about God. And when we see the truth about God, it puts us back in place. You see, godly sorrow is kind of like a good chiropractor or like a, a good golf coach, you know, who puts things back in place, you know, like my swing was like this, and I was wondering why I wasn't hitting the ball well, you know, you know, straighten out that elbow, you know, lock it in there, keep it, you know, and, and I was doing something wrong, but in light of the goodness, I just saw what was wrong, and where I was deceived, and how I wasn't seeing things right, and now there's hope, because this is actually can change, and there's power for it, and what he's saying is, Corinth, listen, you're listening to these super apostles who are telling you to try this and try that and listen to that. Stop all that. Listen to the power of God. Look in the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, the veil is taken away and we now behold the face of Christ and we look face to face with him. And as we stare into his glory, we are transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Because what happens is we're humbled. We're humbled. Over here where I thought I can do this on my own, I realized I can't do this on my own. And over here where I thought I can't do this at all, now I realize it's okay because he can. Humility isn't being about brought low. Humility is about being brought into truth, about where I really am. It's not being, you know, feeling bad about myself. That's not humility. That's false humility, feeling bad about feeling the way I'm supposed to, seeing and understanding what I'm supposed to, that yes, I am a depraved sinner who has no ability to get out of my situation, but I am a child of the living God who has all the power to change me. And that kind of sorrow leads to repentance, leads to change. As I stare into the face of God and of his truth, he can change me. And this is the moment where he says, stop looking at the cone, stop just tell, looking at me and do it. Like, give yourself wholeheartedly to God. And when you do, you will see change. Amen? Amen. So we uh, prayed and we looked at context. And what's the last thing we do? We worship, and we're going to worship by just giving God praise in a word of prayer here, okay? God, we give you praise because this is your word. This uh, This is your goodness. You are the genius. You are the one above it all. You're God Almighty. And it's only by you that we are saved. It's only by your mercy and grace that we can move from a realm of flesh into a realm of spirit. It's only by you that our eyes of flesh can be transformed and we can have eyes of faith that can see the truth. We ask that as we read the scriptures that God, our eyes of faith would grab a hold of you in the scriptures. We ask that as we walk through our lives that you would transform how we see our lives, God, that we would be able to eat and sleep and think and breathe you and kingdom of God. Guide us. We love you so much and we thank you for your guidance and for your word. We ask that you would take this and apply it to our lives, please. In Jesus' name, amen.